what is it like knowing that people invoke your name all the time when they're like negotiating to get their asses licked uh, with their loved ones? I, I, I wish there was some sort of commission or percentage or cut I could get of that. Like every hundred times your ass gets licked, I get a lick too. Just so there, there's, where's my taste? The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Sex Lives, New York Magazine's podcast about sex. I'm Maureen O'Connor. Last week, I had the distinct pleasure of meeting the godfather of all sex columnists, Dan Savage. He has been writing a sexual advice column for 26 years called Savage Love. He's the author of several books about his own love life and everyone else's love lives. And he runs the weekly Savage Love cast. He invited us to the penthouse hotel suite where he was staying in a very glamorous hotel in Chelsea to talk to us about how he got into the sexual advice business, what's changed over the last 26 years, and the totally bizarre story of how he lost his virginity. Can we talk about that moment of how Savage Love started? Sure. I met somebody in Madison, Wisconsin, Tim Kak, who is the co-founder of mm-hmm. The Onion, uh, Tim Keck and Chris Johnson created The Onion. They invented writing bullshit in the AP style. Um, and they sold The Onion, and Tim was going to move to Seattle and start a weekly paper. And uh, through a mutual friend, I had a conversation with Tim where I said, you know, at a party, just you should have an advice column because everybody reads those. You see the Q&A format in a paper, and you can't not read it. Mm-hmm. And he said, that's excellent advice. You should write the advice column. And I said, I wasn't talking about me. I'd never really written anything before. And we began to joke about how I couldn't write a sex advice column in a straight newspaper because I was a gay guy. But maybe that would be funny if a gay guy wrote sex advice for straight people. And this is 1990. We had this conversation. It would be six months a year. I was going to write this silly joke of a column uh, before I moved back to Europe with my then boyfriend where I would treat straight people and straight sex with the same contempt Mm-hmm. That heterosexual advice columnists had always treated gay people and gay sex with. Because you would occasionally see a letter in Abby or Ann Landers yeah. or the Playboy Advisor when we were kids uh, from a gay person. And the columnists, except for Abigail Van Buren, would wrinkle their nose and felt compelled to say that this was sick and perverted and, and not okay. And your parents, your mother must be breaking your mother's heart, but here's some advice. Uh, and that's what I did, like the first six months, which is like straight people. Ew, straight sex, gross. Why would you ever? Uh. Uh-huh. Uh, but here's some advice. And the column just took off because this thing I thought would be kind of a funny joke and my way of getting back at straight people. Um, straight people had never been treated like that in print before, and they loved it. <laughs> Why did they love it? I don't, because it was a new and novel experience for them. Of being told they were disgusting. Yeah, of like getting to pretend that they were the oppressed ones, at least in this ah. one little column, in this one, back of this one little newspaper. And then it instantly got syndicated and went all over, the weekly papers all over the country, and then somehow, then New York Times wants me to write op-eds every once in a while, mm-hmm. and with none of which was, you know, 1990. One, I start writing this sex advice column where the other thing that I did, which was radical for them in print, was I let people use the language they actually used when they talked about sex with their friends in print, that we didn't have to switch into some sort of health writing Sanskrit, right. that you could say cock-sucking, or I sucked a cock and not I performed filatio. And that was radical and different, uh, and that I think also fueled uh, the call. I always wanted to sound like a conversation people were having with their friends about sex in a bar when they're drunk and not a conversation they were having in the nurse's office mm-hmm. in junior high. At what point did you realize that 
it was simultaneously kind of a joke to you, but also serious that people were like six months in, the questions were getting really real. Like six <laughs> months in, like these were real questions from real people with real problems. And I kind of then had to start writing a real advice column. And I had to then start to know things that I didn't know. I made so many mistakes. First time I read about the clitoris, I put it in the wrong place. What? Where did you put it? Well, it turns out it's not on the soft palate, which is where I thought it was because that's where mine is. I thought it was, you know, kind of where the cervix is, like up in there somewhere. I never really thought about it. I'd had sex with girls. I'd had sex with girls when I was a teenager, but I didn't look. Um, it was hard to pretend that they were Andy Gibb. If you looked at them at all, uh, kind of turned the lights off and kept your eyes closed and pretend it. And this, you know, 1991, pre-Google. You couldn't find out where the clit was in an instant just by Googling it and looking at the clitoris wiki page. You had to go open a book. Oh, my gosh. So is that what you did? Well, yeah. Yeah, I went and opened a book. I got a bunch of books and started to learn as I went. What were you doing, I guess, before that? Or had you wanted to be a writer? Had Was sex a, I had a particular to, interest? Well, sex is an interest because I was gay. And mm-hmm. sex, if you're gay, is the central sort of torment, mystery, engine of grief when you're young. Uh, and something you have to come to, I think, a deeper understanding of to be yourself. Um, women are more thoughtful about gender. Uh, people of color are more thoughtful about race, obviously, than white people who default to not having to think about it. If they don't choose to think about it, people of color can't not think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sex is something that queer people, gay people, that we have to think about um, because it's the central sort of conflict mystery of our existence. Why am I this and not that? And mm-hmm. how do I accept this or reject this or incorporate this? And what do I do with this? Why am I not like my siblings? Why is this not easy for me? So I did think about sex a lot. And I think even young people who have gay friends who are out and I was out in high school, which is rare for gay men in my generation. And I was that young gay kid that was out to his straight friends. They would come to me for advice because they kind of intuited that too, that maybe I'd thought more about it and might know more about it. And I did. And so I was kind of qualified for it without realizing I was qualified for it and qualified to do for a lot of straight people, something that they particularly needed uh, a gay friend to do for them, which is give them permission uh, if you are gay and you are out, that means you have looked your mom in the eye and told her you put dicks in your mouth. Mom, I'm a cocksucker. Then turning around and telling your boyfriend that you want to do drag or you want to get peed on or you want to do bondage or you want to have a three-way or whatever else, not scary comparatively, not nearly as scary as telling your mother just the baseline, just mom, I want to kiss a boy. Mom, I'm attracted to men. Mom, my relationships are going to be with men. Terrifying. Then being honest with your boyfriend or your friends or your straight friends about everything else you are sexually is not scary. Mm -hmm. That's why gay people are much more open about their kinks, much more open about being non-monogamous, much more open about everything. Because the really hard thing to be open about is being gay in the first place and everything else seems inconsequential in comparison. And straight people don't have that. So, so much of the mail I would get, I think more so than the now, but still now is from straight people who are terrified of not being normal, of having a kink and needing somebody to say, it's okay. And you can do this and give, here's your permission slip. And you would acknowledging they have sex ever <laughs> acknowledging they have sex other, or they want to do something that's non normative. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you are gay and out and open and you've accepted yourself, you've let go of this normal mm-hmm. hang up. And what we know of human sexuality is nobody's normal. There was just a study that came out, I think a couple of years ago, I'm sure you guys wrote about it too. Uh, where they wanted to measure paraphilias, non-normative sexual practices and interests. And what they found was a majority of the population has at least one paraphilia. 
over way over 50% of everybody has at least one paraphilia. It's just that we all have different ones. Right. We all have different ones. But that means that yeah. how is that non-normative sexual interest <laughs> or behavior if it's actually the norm to have a paraphilia? It's not a paraphilia then. That's or just to have a what sex is. Is not a paraphilia. What's what human mm. sexuality is. What was the mom I suck cocks conversation like for you? <laughs> it was l- delayed because I was really ready to come out to my mom when I was 16 and then my dad, uh, or 15, 16, my dad, uh, left, like walked out on, on my mom, leaving her with four kids, no house, no car or a shitty car for teenagers. And you know, he was around and he pitched out sport and he didn't ghost on his family, but you know, they got divorced and it was, you know, I talked to my brother, uh, who I was coming out to about strategizing, about coming out to mom and he was just like, Nope, not now. You'll kill her. It'll kill her. And it was like, it would have killed her if I had told her on top of the divorce. My mom was a Catholic lay minister. My dad was a Catholic deacon. And then, oh, and hey, crying Catholic lady, upset about the end of her marriage, not able to really get out of bed and function. Here's something else for you to cry about. So at 16, I made a decision to wait. Uh, And I told her when I was 18, uh, almost 19. And it was... She had to know at that point, you know, now my parents would have known all along when I was 13 years old, they asked me what I wanted for my birthday. And all I wanted was tickets to the national tour of a chorus line, which is not something a 13 year old straight boy has ever asked for. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. If you're, you know, if you're the parents of a 13 year old straight kid and all he wants is tickets to wicked, he's not a straight kid. (laughs) Most likely. And I told her I was gay and she looked at me and said, uh, did you hear the one about the two gay men who attacked the woman in Lincoln park? which was the gay cruising park in Chicago in the seventies and eighties. I said, no mom, I didn't. And she said, one held her down. The other did her hair. I had no idea where that was going to go. <laughs> right. And we laughed. Did and you laugh? And okay. She, and we, she said, I love you. And she was funny about it. And then she had uh-huh. a big Catholic mom crisis about it. Um, I'm often accused of being hostile to people of faith and particularly Catholics like Rick Santorum. Uh, and it's just not true. And uh, there are two instances in my life where priests stepped in and kind of saved me. And that was one of them because my mother called her priest, Father Tom, who came running to the house when she said, I need to see you. I need to talk to a priest and sat on the front porch with Father Tom and told him that I not that I was gay. This is a long time ago that I said I was gay. Not Danny is gay. Danny says he's gay. My mother said to Tom and he put his hand on my mother's knee and said, Judy, so am I. Really? And it's better this way. It's better that he should not do what I did because he had known me when I was very little. I was went to the seminary. I was thinking about being a priest. And really? Tom had had a terrible drinking problem and had gone to Catholic rehab for uh, drunk priests, which is a, a huge step above Catholic rehab for kitty raping priests. And my parents had stood by him through all of that, and not knowing what was the like core of his pain and his grief that he was trying to drown with red wine. And he told her at that moment that it was that it was being gay, that he was drowning with red wine. Wow. And he encouraged her to accept me. And he did. She did. Why did you think about seminary? Cause I wanted to live in a big house and wear dresses and <laughs> because, well, I believed, you know, until I was 13, 14 years old, mm-hmm. I, I bought it, um, read the Bible a lot and was a little weird kid. And, uh, then when I was, you know, 13, 14, 15, I thought, well, I can never come out. Mm-hmm. And if I can't come out, I can't, I'm certainly not going to get married to a woman. So what was my option otherwise? 
I needed, you know, so many other gay men for over the centuries, the priesthood looked like a great excuse, a get out of enforced, uh, mandatory heterosexuality free card or, and a big house with stained glass. It's glamorous. Um, yeah. in a certain way, I suppose also a way of just getting out of dealing with sex or, I mean, not that priests don't deal with sex, but and we've seen the result of that. Like yeah. the priesthood collected, pulled into it a lot of sexually stunted, damaged, closeted people who were driven into the priesthood. Not all of them, but many of them because of shame and, uh, the inability to accept or really love themselves. And then not, and not everyone who is in that place acts out sexually in inappropriate ways, mm -hmm. but people who put themselves under that kind of pressure sometimes crack and often will act out sexually in inappropriate ways and sees what opportunities come their way and prey on people as we have seen with the Catholic priesthood. What's the second time that a priest saved you? Well, not really saved me, just stepped up. Okay. Um, that first time I really do think he saved father Tom saved my relationship with my mom or accelerated her acceptance, which probably, you know, helped us have as good a relationship as we did. Uh, when we had our son baptized, my, my husband now, and I adopted our mm -hmm. son almost 20 years ago and we brought him home to Chicago, uh, for a baptism, which much to my husband's consternation. And so the consternation of some of my friends, like you're mm -hmm. getting your kid baptized Catholic, what the fuck are you doing? And I identify as a cultural Catholic in the same way I have Jewish friends who, eat bacon and don't believe in that there's a Messiah coming yeah. ever. And there's no God. Uh, but they do Rosh Hashanah and they do Yom Kippur and it affirms their cultural identity as Jews. And I feel like I should be able to affirm my cultural identity as a Catholic in the same sort of way where I can access some of the rituals and feel connected to my family going back for generations. And I wanted to get my kid baptized. I wanted to put him in the baptismal gown that I had been in, uh, that mm -hmm. my mother had been in, that my grandfather had been in. Um, oh my goodness. And honor my family's tradition. Every kid in the family has worn that baptismal gown and the huge extended Irish Catholic family has worn that baptismal gown. It must and be it, so delicately laundered. It, it is. <laughs> it's really held up. It has held up. My mother took really good care of it. Wow. Um, and, you know, my husband had issues with it. Some of our friends, and it was just like, our families have been so accepting of us and this is important to them. How small of us to turn around after they've been so wonderful and accepting and say these things, you know, the, the acceptance and what we've asked from you that was important to us, you gave us this thing that's important to you. Fuck you. We're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. It just seemed petty. Yeah. So we went home and had him baptized. And the church where I grew up, St. Ignatius, wouldn't baptize him because he had gay parents. And my mother drove to St. Ignatius and kicked a hole in that priest who was running that church and told him how dare he. And then we went mm -hmm. to the next church over, uh, Gertrude's in Chicago and had him baptized there. And, uh, father Ed, whose name, last name I won't use cause I don't want to get him in trouble, performed the baptism family priest, the last priest who ever heard my confession. Can you imagine <laughs> <laughs> the last time I went to confession when I was 14 or 15 years old was father Ed. And then he baptized our kid and halfway through the ceremony, he just kind of went rogue and turned to our entire, my entire huge Irish Catholic family that was all at the church and blessed my relationship with Terry. It wasn't a marriage ceremony, mm -hmm. but it was not a part of the baptismal ceremony and called on everyone at the same point in the service where, you know, he was calling on everyone to support this child's journey through Catholic, whatever, um, called on everyone to support our relationship and support Terry and I as a couple. Uh, he didn't have to do it. It was actually kind of a professional risk for him to do it, but it was really beautiful. Do you talk to him about why he did that? No. Did it, do you think it made a difference? In, yeah, yeah, I do. That's really lovely. 
I mean, I thanked him profusely afterwards. Yeah. You know, we were there and I thanked him about for doing that. And he said, of course, and then he meant it. And he had known me when I was five. Wow. What was in that last confession? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing of interest. <laughs> you were too young to be really sinning. <laughs> I was too young. And, you know, whoever told the truth at confession? You'd have to go to confession to confess that you lied at your confession. Last confession. You'd make shit up. Now I should go to confession. <laughs> Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been 35 years since my last confession. I hope you packed a lunch. Because <laughs> we're going to be here for a while. So I'm guessing you didn't raise your son Catholic. No. No, we do, he didn't do a first communion. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't do a CCD or anything. Did you give him his sex talk? Oh, yeah. And fucked it up. Really? I think all parents fuck up the sex talk. Even me. What did you do? You know, he got curious about how babies come into the world and mm -hmm. how he came into the world. And we explained reproduction to him. We explained reproductive biology when we had the sex talk. And one day he uh, came downstairs and jumped on the kitchen counter and glared at me. And <laughs> I was like, DJ, what? What's wrong? And he said, you and daddy have sex for no reason. Two men can't make a baby. And I was like, oh, right. We had the sex talk. And I left out 99.99% of the sex people have, which is for pleasure. Gay people have sex for uh -huh. all the same reasons straight people yeah. do, except maybe twice, which is intimacy, the partner bond, release, pleasure, joy, compulsion, but mostly pleasure. That's why you have sex. Most of the sex you will have over the course of your life is for pleasure. And that's why gay people have sex. And it's the same reason straight people have sex, except for once or twice. Or if you're the Santorums, seven or eight times. <laughs> Do you know if he is engaged with your work? Like if he's read your books <laughs> and your columns and such? If your dad wrote a really filthy sex advice <laughs> column in a dirty sex podcast, hosted it, would you be listening or reading? Probably not. Exactly, yeah. So no, he is not engaged. Also not engaged my husband. He doesn't read the column. Oh, really? He listen to the podcast. Never has? Once in a while, we'll pick it up but doesn't do a deep dive into it, doesn't read it. I find that freeing. I have a funny story about my mother. Um, knowing you have fr friends and family who are reading the column is a little inhibiting. Um, mm -hmm. And so I put it out of my head, which my mother refused to believe after this terrible thing happened. Can I tell this story? Yes. My column hadn't run in Chicago, and then the Chicago Reader was going to pick it up, and I got a month's notice they're going to pick it up. And I let my mother know that the column was going to start running the Reader, and the Reader in Chicago then was just this huge deal. It was as thick as the phone book every week and was hugely important to the city still is, but it was pre internet juggernaut then. Mm -hmm. And so my mother ran around and said, Oh, the reader's going to have Danny's column. Everyone pick up Danny's column. And I'd gotten this question. That's actually a really funny question. What's the difference between blowjobs, cocksucking and fellatio. And my mother to the, to the day she died refused to believe that I didn't do this on purpose because she had been running around saying, everybody should pick up the paper. Everybody <laughs> pick up the paper. Um, Danny's column's going to run. And I answered that question. The difference between cocksucking, blowjob, and fellatio is cocksucking is something my boyfriend does. Blowjobs are something my sister gives. Fellatio is an act my mother performs. <laughs> Which is just about different people having you know, different nomenclature, different comfort levels with words describing the exact same thing. And my mother was uh, ran the counseling center at Loyola University in Chicago, which is a Catholic school. Um, had been running around telling all of her Catholic coworkers and the students she worked with to pick up the paper, and that's what they read. It's her son <laughs> accusing her of having performed fellatio ever in her Catholic life. Did you ask her if she ever did? Of course she did. We talked about it when you know when our parents tried to give us the sex talk and fucked it up. You know, our parents were really uncomfortable with sex. But in the 70s, they, it got into their heads that good parenting meant you had to be comfortable talking with your kids about sex. They would try. Mm -hmm. And it was so awkward. 
And my parents would try to talk to us about sex and they would be in so much physical pain doing it that we were like, stop, stop. It's okay. We'll just go read Penthouse. We'll get it the way you're supposed to get it. <laughs> what was your sexual education like? I read Penthouse magazine for the articles in Playboy. And I read the terrible books that were rattling around the top mm -hmm. shelves of the apartments of people that I babysat for, like uh, The Joy of Sex, like Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask, which is a terrible, terrible book full of uh, lies about mm -hmm. gay people. And, you know, The Sensuous Woman. I read all these books. They were lurking in mm -hmm. the homes of my uh, friends' parents. And I read them. And some of them were right. Some of them were wrong. What's your earliest personal sexual memory? It's hard. You know, you look back as an adult over or some early memories and you can see the sexual sort of spark in them. But mm -hmm. I'm sure you didn't experience it as sexual then. There was a crossing guard when I was in kindergarten that I was obsessed with. And my mother was couldn't understand why I was so obsessed with this crossing guard. But I would just moon at him. And he had a look that is still like the look of the guys I like today. He had like... <laughs> a giant Muppet mouth and long shaggy hair. And I was just completely crushed on him when I was five. And I'm sure I wasn't thinking at five, the things I would think now if I saw him um, mm -hmm. or someone more age appropriate, but there was obviously the kernel of, uh, of who I was romantically, if not sexually. Mm -hmm. Do you remember like if there's a moment or time when you realize that that was also sex? Yeah. Like, you know, you hit puberty and you start, yeah having erections and you start masturbating and the cinema of your dirty mind starts to play <laughs> and you're tormented by it. I remember trying to masturbate about girls. I remember forcing myself to masturbate about a couple having sex, not just a guy mm -hmm. alone. And that was a real effort <laughs> and an unsuccessful one. What was losing your virginity like? Uh, it was, um, hilarious. <laughs> I lost my virginity when I was 15 to a woman who was 22 or 23 and a guy who was, I think, 21 or 22. It was a three-way. Oh, wow. Yeah. They took my virginity. And I had sloppy seconds the first time. Um, and I was desperate for him not to realize that it was him I was attracted to. I was 15. Uh -huh. I kind of knew. But at 15, I still thought, I have to learn how to have sex with women because I'm not going to be able to have sex with men. Um, that lasted about six more months after actually having sex with a woman. Um and he, there was this moment where, you know, I was, he had finished and I was fucking away in the missionary position in a tent in a field in Indiana somewhere. What? Why, why were you in Indiana in a field? Oh my God. It's so embarrassing. This is even, I can't tell you this part. I was uh, camping at an event that I was attending for the Society for Creative Anachronism, the people who dress up like knights and ladies and go to the woods. What? <laughs> I was in ska as it's called. Yeah. What? What? It was a LARPer before a LARPer was a thing. Oh my God. What era were you anachronizing? The Middle Ages. Is that what everyone there does? Mm -hmm. Were you in like a cod piece? And mm -hmm. <laughs> I was until we were fucking. I removed the cod piece. Oh my God, I love this. That would have been a really awkward sort of velvet diaphragm to try to jam in there if I tried to have sex with the cod piece on. So the first. I was a considerate 15 year old. The first time you had sex, you were like removing medieval Renaissance Tights fair and garb. And <laughs> a hat with a giant feather on it. I love that. Yeah. I'm a geek and I still, I was a geek when I still am, <laughs> but he was really sexy and she was my older brother's ex-girlfriend, which was really weird. And Whoa. It, which was by design. I wanted it to get back to him and get back to my whole family that I had had sex with a girl. Oh. So I was not discreet about it because it was buying me time and making me safer. You know, this is 1979, 1980. Uh -huh. 
uh, it was not a safe time to be an out gay teenager um, or to be suspected to mm-hmm. be gay as a teenager. And still today, it's not safe often to be suspected of being queer as a teenager, it's sort of better at some places sometimes, but not everywhere. And so, yeah, I fucked my brother's girlfriend. How did you orchestrate a three-way at age 15? Well, they initiated it. Okay. I, you know, I had been flirting with her and she'd been flirting with ah. me and then he was flirting with her and flirting with... I, I now know flirting with me, but I didn't get it. And, oh. you know, we were messing around. I wrote about this. There's a, a book called Things I Learned from Women Who've Dumped Me. And I wrote about this experience. And uh, I was terrified that he might think I was gay and then kill me. That if he realized he was mm-hmm. naked and having sex in a room with a gay guy, he would kill me. So I wouldn't look at him or touch him. But he touched me. And I thought, oh, that's okay. He knows he can touch me because he knows he's not gay. Uh-huh. How stupid is that? Like, he... He helped me finish. <laughs> they were getting <laughs> impatient. And literally what my 15-year-old warped, closeted brain said was, well, he can do that because he's not gay. If you do that, he'll realize you are gay and kill you. Did you know him afterwards? Like, is he a person who was ever, who was in your life? No. And I'm not on Facebook. So yeah. people had sex with when I was 15 can't find me. <laughs> I mean, they can. They can write me at Savage Love, but I probably won't answer. Hello, Sex Lives listeners. This is Maureen, and I have some slightly sad news to tell you. Sex Lives is coming to an end. We have five episodes left. Our last episode is going to be a breakup extravaganza. I want to hear people call in about the shittiest thing they ever did while dumping someone, the shittiest thing someone did to you. What is the best way to break up? What is the best way to get over a breakup? Is it okay to dump someone via text? Have you ever done it? Do you regret it? Leave us a voice message at 646-494-3590. That's 646-494-3590. All right. And now we'll talk to a man whose podcast is not ending. Here's Dan Savage. When was the first time you fell in love? Oh, my God. I'm just going deep, but these are so fun. I like these. Uh, college. Tommy Ladd went to a party at the theater house. And this is, I was one of two out gay people in the theater department. And mm-hmm. then one of them left. And then I was the only out gay person in the theater department. Where was this? University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, Cranert Center for the Performing Arts. Mm-hmm. That's what the early 80s were like in college. Like the kids in theater yeah. weren't out. They all came out after they graduated. And I made the mistake of, I was already out in Chicago. I was out uh, in high school. Uh, I came out to my mom and my siblings and half the family. And then I got to college. I wasn't going to be closeted theater school. And so I said I was gay and it was like a bomb went off at this theater party. But there was one guy who lived at the theater house who was gay named Tommy. And we ended up fucking that night. Mm -hmm. I fell so madly in love with him. He was short and blonde and had a giant penis that was almost the same mass and weight as the rest of him. (laughs) And it was just really fun. He was actually really helpful to me. You know, I'm sort of whatever you want, like, go for it. Nobody's getting hurt. Uh, it's fine. That's kind of Tommy put that in my head. Cause I was still struggling with a little bit of like Catholic guilt and shame. And mm-hmm. he was just like, it's okay. It's fine. Don't be such a weirdo. And he was wonderful. And with somebody else, I was the person he was cheating with and I really wanted to be with him. And I was really madly in love with him. And then he moved away. Uh, uh, and I inherited it like it's so sick. I inherited his room. I stay, I like kept it as kind of a shrine to him. I moved into the theater house. I lived in the room where he had lived. I went to see him in Minneapolis where he moved to be with his 
boyfriend and then cheated on his boyfriend with me. Yeah, I was the piece on the side. Hmm. Just being the side piece in your first love, do you think that influenced the way your love life played out? <laughs> uh, no, no, not particularly. It does feel like this must be like the beginnings of the campsite rule. He made it clear that he was choosing this other guy over me, but there was yeah. no, I was, he was never mean uh, and or misleading. Maybe that's part of the campsite rule that Tommy inspired was just one of it is like, you know, no sexually transmitted infections, no unplanned pregnancies, no false hopes. Mm -hmm. don't, don't inflate somebody's unrealistic expectations. Don't encourage unrealistic expectations. And he didn't like he was going to be with this guy yeah. and that was it. But he wanted to be with me too. And this is before anybody had thrown the word polyamory onto the table or thrown. Yeah. So that wasn't in the cards. I, I heard from that guy years later, the guy, the guy who moved to be with in Minneapolis after Tommy died, complications of HIV AIDS. And we had a few email exchanges about how much we both loved him. And mm -hmm. there was no animosity even between us. That's such a unique bond, knowing that someone else loved the person you loved, which is in this way that like you can't not be intimate with them, even if you never say a word to them. Yeah. I don't know. There's something kind of lovely about be, that. It shouldn't have to be fraught. It shouldn't have to be a competition. I mean, he picked the other guy over me, so I guess it was a competition. And he should have. Like, I was didn't know my ass from a hole in the ground when I was 19 years old in the theater <laughs> school. I, and he was graduating. I wasn't going to like stick around for some freshman actor boy. Of the things that I think the pieces of sexual culture that, I mean, you've had just a massive influence on, one of those is, I think, the degree to which my generation thinks about monogamy in a way that's almost patterned off after this relationship. Well, I hope so, because monogamy has been such an engine of grief in particularly straight relationships. Mm -hmm. um, I hope we can think differently about it. And if I've helped some people think differently about it, I'm glad. Not that what I want people to think is they shouldn't do it or attempt it, or if that's what they want, they mm -hmm. are fools. I think people should... Be monogamous if they want to be monogamous. Uh, honor monogamous commitments if they've made them, but have realistic expectations around about what that means. You can be monogamous and be in love. You're still going to want to fuck other people. Your partner is still going to want to fuck other people. That you're not fucking other people is what monogamy means. Um, so policing your partner for evidence that they might want to fuck other people. Oh, you looked at porn. You think your personal trainer's hot. You stared at that barista's ass. Like, let go of all of that. Yeah, of course your wife thinks her personal trainer is hot. Has anyone in the whole history of personal trainers ever hired a personal trainer they didn't want to fuck? <laughs> of course, your wife wants to fuck her personal trainer. The question is, is she fucking her personal trainer? That's monogamy. Monogamy mm -hmm. doesn't mean you don't want to. It means you don't. Were you dating anyone when you started Savage Love and entered the world of being a sex expert? <laughs> yeah, I was with a guy for five years uh, before Terry. And we had lived in Berlin. We were there when the wall came down. We were in uh, all over Eastern Europe during the fall of the, the Iron Curtain. It was an amazing time to be there and be alive and have your eyes open. And then he uh, got a job on the road for a year with an opera company. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, these people are starting a newspaper in Seattle. I'm going to go there and we'll see each other as much as we can. And then we'll move back to Berlin at the end of this year. And then, of course, I got to Seattle and we broke up. And then I was marooned in Seattle, a city I'd never been in and didn't particularly care for or want to live in. And 26 years later, I'm still there. What was dating like when you were already sort of a public <laughs> sex person? It I was mean, awkward, <laughs> especially in Seattle, because the column was first in Seattle and it kind yeah. of exploded. And then I moved to Seattle six months after the column started. And it was, you know, they were selling T-shirts in the in Pike Place Market in Seattle that said, I am Dan Savage. Because nobody knew who Dan Savage was. And everyone was talking about who this Dan Savage person was who was writing the sex column. And then I moved to town and I had been writing the column under my own name because I didn't live there. 
Uh-huh. And then I moved there, and then it was like, oh, well, now I have to live under a pseudonym. Um, Did you? Yeah, for a little bit. I started my theater, and uh, mm-hmm. I started a theater in Seattle, and the my theater name was, my middle name's Keenan, which is one of my grandmother's maiden name, and I took my other grandmother's maiden name, Hollihan, and I was Keenan Hollihan. Because I wasn't Irish enough. I wasn't pasty and Irish enough. I chose Keenan Hollihan as my... Because there are some people, I think, who would arrive in town and be like, oh my God, everyone wants to be me. I'm me. Like, I'm the no. king of the world. No, no. Not your instinct. Me. And then I had to, I, you know, I did drag for 10 years, not because I was a drag queen, although I'm good at it. I'm funny and I look great in drag. But I had I met some drag queens and I was like, they want me to do public appearances as Dan Savage, but I don't want people to recognize me when I'm after it. And they would put me in drag and I would go, you know, host a community event or a forum <laughs> or do a gig in full crazy drag. Because when I took it all off, nobody could tell that that was me. People knew what I looked like in drag and didn't know what I looked like when I was a guy. What did you look like in drag? Did you have a look? Yeah, I looked great. <laughs> <laughs> I was sort of a glamazon. I was like eight feet tall, giant wigs. And uh, I was super skinny then and had like a 20 inch waist and a waist cinch. And I looked like what straight guys then thought women were going to look like when they grew up. Like they would see women in penthouse and playboy, ah. a certain kind of statuesque, big haired eighties <laughs> look. And women don't look like that. Drag queens do. And women in magazines can be made to look like that. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting to like go to these straight clubs, straight sex parties, big straight events, uh, and interact with straight guys when you look like what they thought women were going to look like, but don't. Did you date as Dan or as Keenan, or were those two identities actually as separate as I'm? Oh no, I dated. Uh, you know, I uh, I dated as Dan. Like, yeah, but it was it was awkward and complicated because people would read my column and then make assumptions about me and who I was and what I was into and and be you know crazy aggressive or crazy no boundaries because why would I have boundaries? I wrote, I wrote a column about fist fucking, so why couldn't you just try to do that to me without obtaining my advanced consent? What? Yeah. Ugh. It's just like, what are you doing? I'm going to fist you. No, you're not. <laughs> you will now put my ass down and back away from my ass, please. <laughs> That's what was so great about meeting Terry. Was we were, you know, when we first got together, peop- we had some mutual friends. We met at a fifth anniversary of this nightclub where my theater was in this bar in this nightclub. And Terry came to these, like, dance nights. He was a raver boy and came to these dance nights uh, mm-hmm. with these DJs at this club. So we were... Of this club, but with no overlap, because I would do my shows there and we'd be out by 11 and then he would show up and dance till four in the morning. And so we were both there. And so we had mutual friends through this club, Mm -hmm. other DJs and people who work there. And when we first got together, people were like, no way. You're too different. And that's actually what's kept us together is we're so different. And Terry wasn't reading my column then and has never really read my column or my books or anything. And we have a great connection, obviously, uh, 23 years in. And I met the guy in Seattle who could give a shit about my stupid column. And he saved the column. Really? Because early 90s, Candace Bushnell, all of us who were writing sex columns out there, we would write about ourselves. We'd write about our friends and our sex lives. And, you know, I did a little bit of that the first few years of Savage Love. And then I met Terry and he said, you can write about your sex life or you can have sex with me, but you can't write about your sex life and have sex with me. And I was like, all right, I will stop writing about my sex life. And I think that's why Savage Love has had the longevity it's had. Because it's not about me, it's about the readers. And sex columnists who write about themselves, eventually I think readers lose faith in them. That these aren't genuine experiences after a while. That they're just fodder. That they're out there initiating relationships or having experiences just to have something to write about. Mm -hmm. And so what at first seemed like such a genuine, authentic, personal voice becomes 
suspect and readers feel gamed or played. Mm-hmm. And because my column after those first couple of years was never about me again, and readers never felt gamed or played because it was always about them after that point, after Terry. It was not yeah. about me. If I kept writing about myself, my column probably would have ended in the 90s like so many others. Have the questions changed over the years? Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> Pre-internet, pre-Google, 1991, half the questions, what's a butt plug? Um, <laughs> where's the swingers club uh, where I live? Imagine a time when instead of yelping you had to write a letter to a guy and hope that he answered in a newspaper for right. you uh, yeah what's a butt plug butt plugs have a wiki page now <laughs> if you can send me an email you can get online and get to the butt plug wiki which is like huge surprisingly detailed um, <laughs> exhaustively researched the butt plug wiki uh, but people would hear butt plug and think, what is that? Like a cork for gay men's asses when they become incontinent later in life? What's a butt plug? And they would write me and I would have to explain to them what it is. And it is not that. And gay men do not need corks for their asses later in life. Um, and that's an easy column to write. What's a butt plug? Yeah. And a fun column to write. And, you know, where's the swingers club? I live in Dallas. Where's the swingers club? Well, that was kind of specialized knowledge then. You needed to be have certain kind of swingers magazines that would have P.O. boxes. And you would then tell somebody where they could write to the P.O. box to find out to get an invite to the, the swingers club orientation meeting where they live. Now every swingers club has a website yeah, and you can contact them directly. You don't need me with my like pile of swingers magazines from around the country. Uh-huh. And you don't need me to explain a butt plugs. It is a wikis. All the questions now are situational ethics. I did this. They did that. Who's right. Who's wrong. What do we do next? And those are a lot harder to answer than what's a butt plug. Yeah. When I sit down with the mail and I'm just like, Oh my God. I don't know what to tell you. You have to be like Solomon cutting the blowjobs in half all day long. <laughs> Does anything shock you anymore? Nothing ever did. <laughs> Why? Are you well, just I mean, inherently unshockable? Every once in a while you get a letter from someone who's, you know, one, a million years ago, guy having sex with his mother and thinks that there needs to be an incest pride movement modeled on the gay pride movement because who are they hurting and their love is very beautiful. And that was like, <laughs> well, please don't do that. You know, somebody having sex with, dogs who kind of feels the same way and you know the the horrible shitty things people do to each other mm-hmm. and how dense and, and oblivious people can be you know they write out a whole letter about what a jerk they are and they're convinced that the other person is the jerk and every detail in the letter is pointing a finger at themselves and that's always kind of shocking how unself-aware and unself-critical you know as a gay person there's this big period of your life where you're so hyper aware of how you are perceived and you're scrutinizing yourself so closely for any sign that you're giving away the gayness that you're trying to conceal for your own physical safety that you have to conceal. And then to like interact with people who just have no ability to, to, to scrutinize themselves, who don't have the third eye they could put in the corner of the room and look at themselves and look at how they're behaving and look at how they're coming across. For me as a gay person, I think for a lot of gay people, we don't understand how people can not be able to do that because we all did it. We all had to do it. It was a matter of our own survival to be able to do that. Is there any advice you wish you could take back? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. My life would be I'd be able to go to speak at a college campus again if I could take back some advice I gave years ago. You know, I'd put the clitoris in the right place for starters in 1991 (laughs) when I put it where the cervix is. Yeah, no, there's really not a lot that I would take back. Even when, I, even when you're wrong, you don't take it back. You're not the Pope. You're not claiming mm-hmm. to be infallible. I once, when I first started taking email and I resisted email for a very long time. Because, Why? Because if somebody wrote you a letter and said that they were a 16 year old girl in an incestuous relationship with their father and it was wonderful and beautiful, 
and you get that by email, well, you don't have a lot of other information. Mm. If you get that letter and it's on a, written on a legal pad with a fountain pen, longhand, you know that wasn't written by a 16-year-old yeah. girl. Yeah, yeah. And so you get details from the actual physical letters as well that I thought were interesting and telling. Mm. But I went to email reluctantly, and I answered a question, told them to break up, uh, and then accidentally, because I was not used to email yet, answered the same question like three or six months later and gave the opposite advice. Oh, really? Yeah. So bear that in mind when you turn to an advice columnist <laughs> uh, for help, that it depends on the time of day and their mood and how high they are. Uh, Did it have the person sent the same letter in just two different formats? No, no, no. They, I answered the same letter twice. I was searching the emails oh, I see. on a topic, and this letter popped up, and I didn't look at the date. And I didn't realize that it was six months old, and I didn't realize or remember that I'd already answered it. You know, when also when you had to write a letter, it wasn't. It was difficult to write a letter to every yeah. advice columnist. Now you just swap out email addresses, and you can send them to everybody. <laughs> I just got a question recently that was addressed to Prudence. And they'd put my email on it and sent it to Prudence. And I wrote to Mallory Ortberg, who writes to Prudence now for Slate, and said, I bet you have a question addressed to your email that says, Dear Dan. And she did. They just uh, screwed up the email addresses did and the salutations. Did either of you answer it? We didn't. I, we were planning, and I need to get back in touch with her, of both of us answering it together. I guess it's like the sending your resume to the wrong place yeah. <laughs> situation. Yeah. Or sending an email to your girlfriend that you meant to send to your wife or vice versa. Let's talk about politics a little, since you, that's been part of your career. You're grimacing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> politics right now is painful to contemplate. Since always been a part of my column. Yeah. I've always said, whenever I write about politics, I hear from people saying, I read you for sex, leave politics alone. And I always say, I will leave politics and politicians alone when politicians leave sex alone. And they won't. Gay people, women, reproductive freedom, politi politicians are all over our sex lives. And... If you write about sex and you're not writing about politics, you're not writing about sex. How do we under think about this moment, I suppose, in terms of sexual politics compared to other moments that have might maybe felt bleak? Uh, you know, after Donald Trump won the election, I just kind of got thrown back to the mid 80s, early 80s, uh, the worst years of the AIDS epidemic. And that feeling of being under siege, that feeling of having the entire federal government stacked up against you, you know, Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, both houses, the White House, the Supreme Court, majority of state legislators and governor's mansions, just just the overwhelming sense that the deck is stacked against you and everyone's coming to get you. How can one lead one's personal life with that feeling looming? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> one of the things that threw me back to the AIDS epidemic was the night after the election. That Wednesday, I had to go host a, one of the screenings of Hump, the porn festival that, mm -hmm. that I curate. And, you know, I walk out in this theater and there's 800 shell-shocked, sex-positive lefties who feel like maybe they shouldn't be there, that this is wrong. How can we be enjoying ourselves in a moment like this? And I spoke that night before the screening and just told everyone, hello, I'm an old fag. <laughs> and in the mid-80s when, you know, it looked like this was it and we were all going to die uh, and the moral majority was coming for us and Ronald Reagan was in the White House um, and they were talking about quarantines and tattooing gay men on the arm and buttocks. Uh, yeah, there was ugly shit floating around and Jesse Helms was in the Senate. One of the things that drove them crazy, the enemies of gay existence crazy, was how much fun we were having. That we were going mm -hmm. to the ACT UP demo and shutting down the American Medical Association uh, during the day and then there would be an after event party where we danced and 
made out and fucked and we kept making art and mm-hmm. kept making porn and we kept loving and fucking each other and we kept uh, having joy. And not only was it important because it lifted our spirits and kept us in the fight, it was good psyops on the other side because they wanted us curled up uh-huh. in the fetal position on the floor. They wanted us to lay down and die and they couldn't understand why we weren't just too devastated and, and too racked by grief and the deaths that we were having to absorb day after day after day, they couldn't understand how we still had so much joy. And so part of the resistance is making time for, you know, not to like lean on that horrible now over abused and appropriated cliche of, you know, uh, self care, but part of being able to resist effectively is taking time out to remember why you want the country to be a different place in the first place and to be a place where people can make their own way, experience joy, uh, and, uh, create pleasure and connection. And so not only shouldn't you feel bad about being at the porn festival, maybe the day after Trump gets elected, the porn festival is exactly where you need to be. Mm-hmm. Do you get a sense that people's anxieties about sex are different now? Do you think that the election actually changed oh, the election. people's sexual anxiety? Oh, at all? yeah, there was a lot of terror. I don't know what you did on election night, but after it all went down, I had been hosting an election night party like I did in 2012 and 2008 and 2004 and 2004 was super depressing um, and 2008 and 12 was super exciting and I went into that night thinking Clinton was going to win like just about every sane and sensible and optimistic person and was completely devastated and my husband was supposed to come down to the party and join us but he had stayed home because things were clearly going south before he even left the house so he stayed home and got drunk and I came home a little drunk and Mm -hmm. We had like insane life affirming, desperate terror sex. That's what I called it that next week in my column. Like mm-hmm. a lot of, not that I was writing about our sex lives, but a lot of people were throwing themselves at, at, at each other in a way that reminded me of the, the days immediately after 9 11. And there were articles written about terror sex in mm-hmm. New York Magazine and New York Times. Um, and it wasn't just New Yorkers who were suddenly having terror sex. People all over the country were. And I think that's, I think people are more sexual in the wake of Donald Trump, hopefully more consensual in the wake of Donald Trump. I don't think Donald Trump is a model for anyone sexually, but the upset requires you to reach out and grab things that make you feel centered and and give you peace and give you joy. Better it should be sex than alcohol. Better it should be sex than drugs. Better it should be sex than a lot of things that you could reach to at that moment. Terry reached for the bottle and then he reached for my dick. That's how it should be. (laughs) Is this how you would have pictured your life? No. It's a ridiculous life. Yeah. (laughs) Well, had you, you know, I want to ask that on two fronts. First of all, had you pictured yourself being married someday or having a child? I had a conversation with my mother when I first came out where she said her, one of her primary concerns, objections, grief uh, for her was that I would never marry and never have children. And that's why she didn't want me to be gay. And I looked at her, uh, we talked about this for years afterwards and said, and whose fault is that, that I can't get married mm-hmm. and that I can't have children. Whose fault is that? It's not my fault. Yeah. We didn't make the rules. Like we're not choosing to be gay. Uh, we are deprived of those things through your choice. Straight people are to blame for the fact that you're a gay kid, can't get married, can't have mm-hmm. children. So yeah, I am really surprised that I'm married and I have children. 
So yeah. you did you believe that that being gay meant you wouldn't be able to do that? Yeah, I did. I, not not because I didn't want to, but because I wouldn't be allowed to. And mm-hmm. you know, in 1981 or whenever that was, it was hard to conceive that I would ever be able to do either thing. Uh, but thanks to the secret weapon of queerness, which is that we're randomly distributed throughout the population. Yeah. Once queer people started coming out en masse to their families, we began to flip our families. And flipping families meant flipping communities and cities and, mm-hmm. and, and elected officials and uh, states and uh, Supreme Courts. You know, that <laughs> yeah. was if and it's not a perfect analogy in the experience of racial discrimination uh, and discrimination you know, based on people's sexual orientations or identities of gender are not analogous. But if people of color were randomly distributed throughout the population, if you found out your kid was African-American when he turned 13 or 14 years old, George Zimmerman would be in prison. In a world where people acknowledge their sexualities, it's kind of impossible not to at least be aware somehow. Right. And you have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of People who are not people of color can sidestep these issues because they don't literally have fucking skin in the game. And once your queer kid is out, your whole extended family has skin in the game when it comes to sexual orientation and the rights of sexual minorities in a way that I think through, you know, intermarriage, you do see more, you know, blended families, you do mm-hmm. see more interracial families. And so there's that, but it's not as far reaching or as effective. Um, it's not as far reaching. Yeah. What about in terms of how you had pictured the way your like work life would be in your career? I didn't picture that. You know, I have a theater <laughs> degree and I was going to do shows. Uh, I had a theater in Seattle for uh, five or six years. It was really mm-hmm. successful. And then this took over. It's just I couldn't keep doing both. Yeah. So hilarious that theater was my fallback career. If <laughs> writing about fist fucking didn't work out professionally. Do you think you're going to keep doing this till the end of time? Yeah. An advice column is such a sweet gig. Yeah, you know, like Ann Landers, they're going to pry it out of my cold dead hands someday. I write Ann, I write my column at Ann Landers' desk. Oh, really? I bought Ann Landers' desk at auction after after she passed away. A lot of people don't even remember Ann Landers anymore. She passed away like fifteen years ago. But I bought her. I went to the auction of, of her personal effects and bought her desk, so that her desk could still be in the advice business. You know, some twenty six years of like cranking out the weekly column and the letter of the day now for ten years. Um, and it never feels like a grind. It feels it's still like it's not to get too mawkish. Like it still feels like a privilege. People send me emails from with their own names on them, divulging these really personal problems and details uh, of their lives, and, and and trust me to like have some sort of perspective I can share with them that might be helpful, or a joke I can make at their expense that they're willing to uh, let me make because sometimes I joke, and that's uh that's a great stupid gig, and I'm thrilled to have it. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. It was really I love talking to you. Oh. That's it for this week's episode. Although I should note that Dan did tell us a pretty amazing breakup story, which we will be airing in our final breakup episode five weeks from now when Sex Lives comes to its end. And just a reminder that if you would like to participate in that episode, give us a call at 646-494-3590 to leave a voicemail about the best breakups of your life, the worst breakups of your life. Tell us your embarrassing stories, your dilemmas, your questions, and we'll listen to it and talk about all of it five weeks from now. That's 646-494-3590. Sex Lives is produced by Afim Shapiro. Thanks also to Andy Bowers at Panoply, and thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.